We're starting a new series in 1 Thessalonians today, so aren't you excited? 1 Thessalonians, yes. Let's practice saying it. Um, I didn't trip in the first service, but I'm afraid I will now. Say Thessalonians. Okay, now we're going to practice the city. The city was called Thessalonica. Very good. All right. You guys are doing great. You can speak Greek, okay? You're awesome. So we're starting a series called Authentic Church, and we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians. So if you will open up your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, if you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to grab one of the ones that you'll see under the chairs, pull that out, and we'll be on page 986, page 986 in the Black Bibles, 1 Thessalonians. Um, We're calling it Authentic Church because again and again throughout the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul is describing what it means to be actually transformed by the grace that God has for us in Jesus. That grace changes people. It gives them faith and hope and love. It makes them do crazy things that they wouldn't do before. It makes people who didn't love others well begin to love and serve other people. And so you see the spiritual transformation that Paul is describing here. The word authentic is never actually used in this text. But again and again, he's saying, this is what the church is supposed to look like. And then he exhorts them and encourages them and says, keep going. So you're doing a great job. Spiritual transformation is happening in your life. Now keep going and keep serving the Lord. And he kind of encourages them to to keep on, keep following Jesus. So we're excited to be studying this together. We'll be a little bit in Acts 17, mostly in 1 Thessalonians 1 today. And before I read the text... I want to just kind of describe to you what happened around the founding of the church in Thessalonica. So Paul was preaching the gospel around the Middle Eastern world. He started off going to some of the islands like Crete and some of these places nearby to um, their little corner of the Middle East we would know as Israel, Jerusalem. He was sent out from Antioch when he first started preaching. And so if you think of the, of the ancient world and you've kind of got where Jerusalem is, think of it as the center kind of roughly Asia to the east and what we would consider Europe, the Greek and Roman world to the west and northwest, Paul started with little concentric circles primarily going north and northwest. And then he felt like to be diversifying his investment, he should go to Asia. But in his efforts to go east to Asia, he felt that the Holy Spirit was stopping him, not allowing him to go. We don't know exactly what that looked like. Maybe it was just an impression he had in prayer And then it got even stronger. He had a vision of a Greek or Macedonian man in a vision, in a dream, calling him to come preach the gospel to them. So Paul gets his missionary team together, and he's like, all right, we're not going to go east. We're going to go west. We're going to go into Greece, into Macedonia. And when he starts heading that direction, this takes place in Acts 16 and 17. We follow him going to many different cities. Again and again, when Paul would preach the gospel, there would be like a riot, or he would get beat up and thrown into jail. And that is the context in which the church was planted in Thessalonica. He first goes to Philippi. He gets thrown in jail. He gets broken out of jail. Then he goes to Thessalonica, and he starts a church, and people start believing in Jesus. But then there's a riot, and then he gets kicked out of the the city. And then he goes to the next city. The people from Thessalonica follow him to the next city and try to beat him up in the next city. That's the context in which this church starts. And so with that as background, think about how close he was then with those who actually believed. And I want you to think about, as we're reading this, as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, when you feel like God calls you to something, do you believe it's going to be easy, or do you recognize that it might be difficult? I have to admit, if, if I was on Paul's missionary team, and he said, I had a vision that we're supposed to go to Greece, and then we kept getting beat up and thrown in jail, 
I would be doubting Paul's leadership, right? But apparently that's, that's where God called him. So, so let's read the text. 1 Thessalonians, we're going to just read the first three verses. 1 Thessalonians 1, he says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, um, just to pause for just a minute, this was the standard format for a letter. You know how we will put address, dear sir, madam, dear so-and-so. You know, we have a standard format we use in letters. Um, for those of you that have written paper letters before, there's a standard format for that. Um, And it was the same way in the ancient world. They would always start off by giving the name of the person writing the letter and then saying who it's to. And that's what he's doing. Paul, Silvanus. Silvanus is the other name for Silas. So he's a character that worked with Paul a lot in the book of Acts. So Paul, Silas or Silvanus, that's his longer name, and Timothy. To the church, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. Um, The standard... Greek greeting would be either grace or joy, which are variations of the same word, kairē or kairos. Um, and then peace would be the standard Jewish greeting. And so he's kind of combining those. Usually he'll say something like that as he greets the church. Um, grace to you and peace. Then in verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to pause there. We'll pray and we'll ask the Lord to teach us this morning. God, we pray that you would help us to understand your word. We thank you for it. Uh, We pray that you would help us to understand it and that you would help us to be your people. Uh, Lord, we want to see you at work in our lives. We want to trust you more. We pray that you would give us grace to be able to do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we think about what it is to be an authentic church, I wanted to Start by just focusing a little bit on the founding, and so I'm going to now have you flip over to Acts chapter 17 for just a minute, and Acts chapter 17, if you're using the black Bibles under the chairs, that's on page 927. Um, If you got your own Bible, you want to flip backwards, Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament, Um, earlier in the New Testament, it's right after the four Gospels, so Acts chapter 17. And what I want us to look at in Acts chapter 17 is this title I've put on the screen that an authentic church is planted in suffering. An authentic church is planted in suffering. We've got the specifics of the kind of opposition that followed Paul around everywhere he went. That's a specific kind of acute suffering, right? A hard, focused suffering. But in a broader sense, God's redeeming work is always taking place in the context of this world that we live in, which is a world of brokenness and suffering. That is the existence that we know, right? We know a world that is a world of suffering and difficulty. We're all suffering at, at different levels. Some of us suffering more, some of us suffering less. We're, you know, we have good weeks, bad weeks. We have sometimes horrible diseases we're facing. Other times we seem to be really healthy and doing well, but we come in and out of different degrees of suffering living in this world. So God's church is always being planted in the midst of suffering. So look at Acts chapter 17, and we're going to see the planting of the church in Thessalonica. Chapter 17, verse 1, he says, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Anybody know what a synagogue of the Jews is? Synagogue of the Jews would be the gathering. Basically, synagogue just means gathering. So it's just a gathering of the Jews And they were all over the ancient world when the Jews had been scattered from Israel in exile. These were then set up all over the world. And they're very similar to what we would think of as a church. So the Jews would set up a place. They'd have a meeting house where they would gather um, to hold on to remembering their God 
they would teach from God's word. They would sing psalms together. Uh, they would have socials and get-togethers, very much like what we think of as church. So these little Jewish gathering places were set up all over the ancient world. So it makes sense any time that Paul would go to preach the gospel, he would go to the place where they already believed in the Old Testament that prophesied about Jesus. And he would go and say, okay, you already like this Old Testament? Well, it tells us about this Jesus, and Jesus is the one that was promised. He's the Messiah that the Old Testament has been waiting for. So that's what it explains. He would do this repeatedly. If you read the book of Acts, you see this process that he went through. And it says there, he was gathering with the synagogue of the Jews, verse 2, and Paul went in, and as was his custom, and on three days, three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scripture. So telling them, verse 3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So he goes in, and he starts with an area of agreement. Um, And I would say this is a really good way for us to understand how to talk to our friends about Jesus. Um, We all have friends that have maybe varying levels of agreement with us. You might have friends that, that don't share your faith in Jesus but they might share some level of agreement of, you know what, I I know the world has got to be designed by some kind of, you know, intelligence. There's some kind of God, maybe. You can start with that level of agreement and then build a case from there. And that was just, that's a common sense way that people talk about who Jesus is. You kind of build a bridge. You say, okay, what do we agree on, right? Do we agree that this is reality or are we just living in a video game? You know, it's like, what, what do we agree with? What do we have some kind of general standing, and then you can reason to Jesus from there. I have friends that work with Muslims, and they'll talk about what the Quran has to say about Jesus. And they'll say, okay, well, your Quran says you should listen to Jesus, so let me talk to you about Jesus, right? And so, so they'll build a bridge, kind of what, what, is your, what is your ground that you have in common with your friends that, that don't know Jesus? Start there and, and naturally have a conversation about who Jesus is. And this is what Paul would do. This was his custom. Um, and it says... He reasoned and proclaimed to you that Jesus is the Christ. Look at verse 4. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. I've got to pause there because you're thinking, probably because you're really into history, you're thinking, Dave, how did Greeks come to faith if he was talking to the Jews? Well, Greeks hung out at the Jewish synagogues. They were called God-fearers. And so there's this common phrase you'll see throughout the book of Acts that there were God-fearers, and those meant pagan Greeks, pagan Romans that were attracted to the God of the Old Testament. Maybe they hadn't fully converted and gotten circumcised and started eating kosher, but they would kind of hang around on the fringes, listen to the Bible being taught. They were interested. And so again, these were Greeks that maybe weren't Jewish, but they liked a lot of the Old Testament. And so they were often the ones that would convert to Christ, right? They already had something in common. So again, we just see this kind of common sense approach of reaching people that are maybe already interested in some way and talking to them about Jesus. Verse 5, look at this. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So Jason had been taking care of Paul. We understand Jason was one of the leaders of the synagogue, and so then they're coming after Paul, and they're dragging him out. It goes on, and it says... Um, Verse 6, they could not find them. They dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Jason has received them. They are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. When they had taken money and security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. 
And then look at verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. And he just 